0: Good afternoon. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Professor Norman Fenton. Uh, Professor Fenton was interviewed a short while ago by uh, Debbie Evans and uh, by Brian Gerrish. And uh, those of you who saw that will be aware that he's uh, the Professor of Risk and uh, Information Management at Queen Mary University of London. And uh, you'll also be aware that the the last interview was fascinating and in some cases quite explosive and finished with uh, him using the phrase that the last two years and the lockdown and all the hysteria over uh, COVID has been uh, a, a, a matter of total shame for academia. So that's where the last interview f- finished and that's where I'd like to start. Uh, Professor Fenton, welcome back. Yeah, nice to be back on. Uh, now, uh. The place I'd like to start is actually your pinned tweet on Twitter. Um, and it references uh, a tweet by the Chief Health Officer of Victoria, uh, Professor Brett Sutton. And uh, he said, I'm down with COVID, feeling pretty rubbish, to be honest. blade throat, painful cough. Um, clearly not the same for everyone, can't imagine how it might have been for me without these three doses of VAT. Good on science. And uh, you commented on this, in future years, statements like this will be used as examples to demonstrate that 2020 to 2022 was the period in history when logic and science ceased to be a thing. Would you like to expand a little on the problems?
1: Yes, I mean, in that case, the 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 whole thing about the vaccines is they were sold as the route out completely of the whole COVID pandemic situation. You know, we were sold the story that if you took the vaccine, initially, you you basically that was it, you would not get COVID, you could not transmit COVID. That was the story. Therefore, statements like that, in retrospect, seem pretty odd, to say the least. But Following on from that, of course, when it became clear that the vaccines weren't stopping infections, they certainly weren't stopping transmissions, they weren't stopping people getting ill, the new narrative became that you couldn't get, that if you were vaccinated, um, you might still get COVID, but you'd only get it very mildly. And then it went on from there. When it became clear that the vaccinated were not only getting and transmitting COVID, but were being hospitalized and dying with it, you get this you know, in, increasing, increasingly bizarre narrative. And yet, while it's while it is widely accepted now, I mean, Deborah Burks came straight out and said it, didn't she? Quite recently. She was the person in charge of the sort of the COVID response in the in the US government. She said that they had basically um, lied essentially, that's what she said. They had lied about the original claims that the about the efficacy of the vaccine, the so-called 95%, which was used as the basis of people to assume they, you know, that they would be protected, they wouldn't get this virus if they had the vaccine. She said, Well, actually, we always knew it was at that point, it was it was maybe no better than 50%. And of course, we've we've got evidence that it's that it wasn't even as, as high as that, but that's a separate thing. Okay, but and this is the but here. And also, it's, well, it's widely accepted now that um, you, uh, it can also be transmitted and that you can also become uh, you know, ill with, with COVID. And yet, strangely, despite all of the evidence, and there's a lot of it now, which actually suggests that the vaccinated are more likely to get seriously ill, hospitalised, and die than the unvaccinated right, with COVID. Despite all that, the public perception, and this is completely strange to me, is that actually no, a lot of people still believe that if you get, if you have been vaccinated and you become ill, you're not going to get really ill and not going to die. And so you get this kind of like script. It's almost this script that 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 um, health minister put out. It's the same script used by so many others. It's this, they're saying the same things, you know. I'm down, I'm pretty ill, it's pretty horrible. You know, I've had my three jabs or my four jabs, or some cases even my five jabs. Um, and thank God for that, otherwise I'd be far worse. that That's the thing. And then they're missing all of this obvious, these obvious things, not the, the least of which is that just from, just I mean, just look around, people surely know when they look around them and speak to people they know are vaccinated. It's becoming increasingly clear uh, it's the vaccinated people who are the ones who are getting COVID, whether mild or not. They're the ones who get it. The unvaccinated, of course, and especially those who were who were had a, you know got the virus naturally and has some natural protection, they're not getting it. They're not getting it a second, third times like all these people who are being vaccinated. The only people getting COVID second, third, and sometimes fourth times are the vaccinated.
0: It, it reminds me of the, uh, the, the, great, the, the great economics crash. There was some, again, there was some very useful modelling. Uh, this is during the uh, 2008 uh, economic crisis. And uh, the, 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 the government economist said, look, we, we've done some modelling. We've got a model of the, of the economy. It's, it's really very good. And if we do nothing, if we do nothing, unemployment is going to go to 8%, and that's unthinkable. Right now, if we act and we take 700 billion, 750 billion dollars now and distribute it to our friends, then, then we can keep unemployment down down to six and a half percent. And that's bad, but, but you know it's not as bad as eight percent. and we, we really need to do this, you know, for the good of everyone, for the, for the greater good. And the economists that I follow, the, the Austrian school guys who, who the government doesn't like, because they don't give the answers they want. They were saying, no, no, no. You, the money printing, the money creation, was the problem. You're just making it worse. So what then happened is they printed all the money. The money went into the economy, and, and, and unemployment didn't go to didn't go to eight percent. It went to ten percent. Right. And and the reaction was, and that that's that's what you would have expected if you thought the, the the money printing was actually harmful. But the reaction from the official economists is, wow it's great that we did the money printing because the economy was obviously much worse than we realised. Can you imagine how bad it would have been if we hadn't printed $750 billion? That, right. That's so a, great, there, it's
1: there, a great analogy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, and there is, there, is no, there is no logical way. It's not falsifiable. It ceases to be science at this point because it's not based on anything solid. It's based on opinion and it's based on politics and there's no yes. way of falsifying the position because whatever happens it will be in accordance with their pet theory so th- this this brings me to my second point right it's, and this this is a a more general kind of malaise in science i'm i'm currently at the moment reading a little book called science at the crossroads this was written in 1972 and it was about the problems with um uh special relativity and and inconsistencies and illogicalities built into it that just weren't being addressed, and uh, the the um, scientists who wrote the book had spent thirteen years trying to argue that there was a problem and asking questions, and all he was getting was increasing amounts of hostility. He wasn't getting any answers. He was he, any answers. He was just getting called more imaginative names. Right. So he, he wrote this, and he, he he quotes what science should be. He. he He quotes, let's see now, bear with me one moment. Um, So this is, he's quoting Sir Henry Dale, former president of the Royal Society. Um, He said, science, we should insist, better than any other discipline, can hold up to its students and followers an ideal of patient devotion to the search for objective truth with vision unclouded by personal or political motive, not tolerating any lapse from precision or neglect of any anomaly, fearing only prejudice and preconception, accepting nature's answers humbly and with courage, and giving them to the world with unflinching fidelity, the world cannot afford to lose such a contribution to the moral framework of its civilization. So my question to you is, has that contribution in fact been lost?
1: Well, I mean, we're seeing the same, we're seeing this, this problem over and over again, whereby anybody who challenges the kind of like the official accepted narrative of whatever the majority view is, in what's called the science, and they even sometimes call it the accepted science, even when they are provi- even when they're providing only scientific and detailed claims and criticisms against that narrative they are simply being called they're simply being called names they're simply not they're not being you know that the scientific method is not being uh, applied equally because those people are effectively si- those people are effectively silence and we're seeing this you know you gave gave one example there are many there are many this is and it's not just in things like covid it's not just in things like climate science even when you drill down fun enough into very detailed areas of sort of mathematics and statistics if you if you don't toe the accepted line right which is what gets you papers pub you know pay, papers published in the sort of the necessary prestigious journals to then get funding and stuff like that you're you're basically you know, you're ostracized, you you, you can't, you cannot, your contribute any contributions that you can make are effectively, really very effectively silenced. So there is this, you know, very, very, this is, again, it was part of that, what I was saying in that criticism of academia generally, which has become very, very clear and very exaggerated, and a very exaggerated case with COVID. But it was, it was, it's been there for a long time, which is that, you know, the science, is not what the way it's carried out now, especially in academia, is not how people, you know, like were expecting it should be. That's the thing.
0: Yeah, so I would like to dig into these these issues, particularly in the mathematics and statistics area. Um, for my own field, I'm a, I'm a structural engineer. My own field, one of the one of the errors that I see a lot and, and, and rail against frequently. Um, was described best by um, a mathematician, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century mathematician, called Al- uh, Alfred North Whitehead. And he called it the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, which is the, the mistake of, of confusing a model and its results with the reality it purports to describe. And this this happens a lot in structural engineering because... You, you get, usually, you know, the inexperienced engineers will be following the model to the point of lunacy, and it's the assumptions in the model that are in error, it's not the reality, it's not the actual steel and concrete thing that we're building. So it's a, it's a, it's a good phrase for structural engineering, referring to concreteness. But it, as a general mistake between a theoretical construct and a, and a, and a concrete reality, it seems to be something that, that humanity is very prone to. Now, of course, this all kicked off. With the claim that if we did nothing, two hundred and fifty thousand people would be dead in pretty short order, and this came from mathematical modelling. So, just to kind of set the scene, what's your current view of of that modelling effort and its value, or or um, the harm that it did?
1: Well, just as you said, they're they're placing. Oh, it, I mean, they're not saying that. To be fair, they didn't say this was the exact number. Right? So that we know it's a model, but what they were doing was vastly underestimating the extent of the uncertainty. This is where our kind of risk assessment Bayesian approach comes in. We we try not to do that. So what you'll see is that they'll give their sort of best and worst, you know, the highest and the lowest numbers. And they make assumptions. Those 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 assumptions already what they bake into those are very very um highly um subjective assumptions about some key parameters which are totally unrealistic you know about so for example in those imperial models you know about the number of people for example who may who who would get infected or maybe had already been infected and who would not pass it on to other people for example right so they massively underestimated that and and yet their uncertainty didn't really take account of the uncertainty about parameters like that. Okay, they were taking account of uncertainty about other types of interventions, etc. So what you end up with with that type of modelling are not only exaggerated predictions because of them, you know, selecting inappropriate key uh, parameter values, but the much too narrow. An expression of their uncertainty about the prediction. So we would have, you know, with our type of modeling, we might have predicted a a range which might have included, might have gone up as high as 250,000. But actually, it probably would have been as low as a few hundred. You know, and that would have been kind of like a 95% Bayesian confidence interval. Whereas they're, as I say, they're, they're effectively asserting this much narrower range of uncertainty. And in all of the modeling, and in all of the, not just the modeling, but all of the assessments of sort of safety efficacy that have come out in public about COVID, about the vaccines, et cetera, all suffer from that problem. That when you take full account of uncertainty, when you take full account of causal explanations for the data you're observing, when you take full account of the unseen variables of the biases in the data that you're seeing, when you take all of that in account, which is what our kind of like causal Bayesian network models do, you end up with much greater uncertainty about the prediction, the estimates, and the results that they're that, that are being made public.
0: So this, this the uncertainty is 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 key to any of these decision making. Problems because you're asking people ultimately to make decisions in a very uncertain world, and handling that uncertainty is key. Now, the the way that it's often handled is it's termed a risk assessment. It's interesting you're using the word uncertainty rather than risk. Um, Risk is a is an issue that has um, uh, there are certain difficulties with defining it, and to illustrate them, I've got here in front of me a. A published document from the International Standards Organization called Risk Management Vocabulary. So it's actually defining what the words mean. And when it gets down to um, defining, um, it defines um, risk as the combination of the the, uh, probability of an event and the consequences of that event, fair enough. And it then goes on to describe probability as the likelihood that it will happen. But it then refers to another ISO standard. And it says, yes, probability is a number between zero and one representing the long-term recurrence of an event, or a degree of belief. Yep. Right? And these two these two things are kind of overlaid. And and nobody seems to be aware that two completely disparate concepts have been combined into one. One of the things I find in not just in engineering, in, in other in other things where you're dealing with difficult to Difficult to predict uncertain events. I came across it in the assessment of the risk that that prisoners um, represent to the public when they're when they're due for release. There's a risk assessment done there, and it's called a risk assessment, and that brings with it a certain weight of well, we've got statistics, we've got long-term probability, we've got measurement, we've got objective truth, we've got all these things we can rely on. But actually, what's happening is one human being is looking at the problem, and all you're actually measuring is the degree of belief in the mind of that human being that things will be either, the outcome will be good or bad. So when we talk, when we hear people at the MHRA, and I'll come to some details on this in a minute, when we hear people at the MHRA Talk about risk, and they and they do all the time. They throw it in as, to, as for the justification. They say we recognise that we that the vaccines are causing myocarditis, right? That's a recognised heart condition that's caused by the vaccines. But they then assure everyone, but the benefits hugely outweigh the risk. I'm wondering when they talk about risk, what are they actually talking about? Are they talking about something that they've measured and considered and and quantified, or are they talking about their own belief? Do you have an understanding as to what they mean by risk?
1: Well, yes, I do. I mean, this is, of course, a subject when you, you said that I was talking about uncertainty rather than risk. In fact, I mean, you know, my, my book on risk assessment um, and decision making is, is all about attempting to quantify risk using probability. Right, but cut to your point about whether it's a subjective belief or whether it's based on some kind of data, the problem is, as you say, that in many cases it isn't based. It, well, it, you know, if it was a probability, you think it should be. Uh, it should be dependent. They should be assuming. They should be based on some kind of data that they've collected, and it isn't. It's just a subjective belief. Now, our approach, again, the Bayesian approach, is that you can combine both subjective sort of prior beliefs with any data you've got and you might have only limited data and bayes is able to incorporate those two of course these people don't tend to do that as you say it will be in some cases they will present a a a measure of the risk which is quantitative which is probabilistic in in terms of the rate of occurrences of those uh, those adverse effects okay so i'm not i wouldn't go so far as to say that they're always just it's always just you know one person making a subjective belief but the problem is that where the subjectivity comes in with that is that ultimately as you said risk is the the standard definition you said in the first definition you said it was probability the probability of something the bad thing happens times the impact so normally you're multiplying so if they you know, prob- some actually in most sort of risk register approaches they're they're giving probability on a scale of something like one to five and the impact on a scale of one to five so when you multiply them and you get you know the highest number that's that's your biggest risk event because it's both high probability and high impact right but here's the problem that probability what how do you get that probability even if you've got the data even if you had the data for the probability that this event you know this event happens like you know for example a meteor you know meteor striking earth that's a that's a it's a very low probability event but it's got it's, but it's high impact well that's always going to be conditioned on lots of other causal factors and lots of other interventions well, well suppose we know that the the meteor on a that there's a meteor on a direct collision course with earth well then you get a completely different probability suppose we know there's some intervention actions already planned, already in place. Well, your probability has to take account of all of those. You end up with quite a rich and complex causal structure before you can even think about assigning a single probability value to that event happening. It's, and it's, it's the same with impact. How do you measure the impact? It's the same thing. It depends on what what mitigation strategies are in place. You know, this is, this, and, and, and the problem with these approaches to risk assessment, is that we argue strongly, you need to look at the full causal picture, which takes account of the controls, interventions, mitigants, as well as prior beliefs and any historical data you've got if it is available. And only then can you come up with rational
0: assessments of risk to support
1: decision making. But they don't do
0: that. Yeah, we we've been you know, trying to get some of some of this data from the MHRA now since uh, I think June twenty one, so you know, well over a year. So the first the yeah. first request I put through to them was as follows: as the extremely rare cases of blood clots with low levels of platelets have been observed following vaccination with COVID nineteen vaccine AstraZeneca. The majority of these cases occurred within the first fourteen days following vaccination, but some have been reported after this period. Some cases were life-threatening or had a fatal outcome. That was a quote from the package leaflet from AstraZeneca. So AstraZeneca were admitting, yeah, we we know this is going to kill some people, right? I continued, the justification for the continued use of the AstraZeneca vaccine is based on objective statistical quantitative risk assessment. Again, quoting the package leaflet, it is important to remember that the benefits of vaccination to give protection against COVID-19 still outweigh any potential risks, end quote. Therefore I said please provide full calculations evidence basis and supporting documentation that demonstrates the relative risk from covid-19 for various sections of the population before and after vaccination and compare those risks to the risks from the vaccination program.
1: Yeah
0: 15 months later no answer.
1: They didn't even answer.
0: It's just silence. No answer. I got I, no, I got an acknowledgement email we got we got it we're working on it but I, I and I resent it another twice I got another two acknowledgement emails i got no answer to that.
1: That, that. That's the thing. I mean, that comes back to your point. They, at that point, their, their assessment of the, they had some idea about the risks, right? So a little bit of data on that, not much. They had a little bit of trials data on that. So they knew, they knew something about, they had some quantitative information about the, the risk, the probability of those serious adverse event outcomes. But they didn't have anything like that for the benefits, or even worse, even worse, they were making these assumptions, like were made originally for the you know for the benefit the, the efficacy of the vaccine. They were making assumptions that were actually, um, if you took the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID, and therefore you're preventing all these deaths. And if, incidentally, you've seen you've probably seen these ridiculous studies which claim, for example, worldwide that the vaccines have saved twenty million deaths, and in the UK they've saved whatever half a million has even been claimed. And what are those? What are those? claims based on, they're based on the original models. The original models are saying, you know, which were predicting these incredibly high numbers of, um, of deaths from COVID. And then they're saying, well, um, that's, they're simply comparing those, they're looking now at what the real numbers are, and they're saying, well, we'll take the difference between what was predicted and what and the actual deaths were saying, and we're effectively concluding, well, it's the vaccines that have done that. I mean, it's that's absolutely ridiculous there is no justification for those claims of of, of save of of numbers of of lives saved and they certainly none of those models ever we know they certainly don't take account of the number of increased covid cases caused by the vaccine which of course we now know that there, there are so many
0: it's all the more grievous because of the nature of covid because these things would be bad enough if if it affected the whole of the population equally but it, it doesn't right the very young it just exactly. doesn't touch the the decision making must must acknowledge that reality and the decision for a 5 year old and the decision for an 85 year old or a 70 year old is not necessarily going to be the same decision certainly the the, the risks and benefits are going to be different whether the decision at the end of the day is different th- those risks and benefits are, are significantly different and and we never saw that really being reflected so this was the second um, the second um, freedom of information request I sent into MHRA having been around everybody else in government um, i I said to them um, that um, all the the other branches of government referred me to them for a quantitative risk assessment or similar detailed verification demonstrating that the vaccines approved for use in children under 12 years of age are safe and effective and the risks associated with vaccination are clearly and substantially less than the risks associated with COVID-19 in that age group. All right. I'll, I'll read you a reply in a minute, but the, 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 the point here is that the risks for the under-12s were minuscule. So almost any risk of vaccine damage will outweigh it. And, and I can't see, even if it was just a matter of a superficial look at the data and a subjective belief, I, I find it difficult to understand on what basis the MHRA, the vaccine manufacturers and others can be, saying, can be saying, yes, we've looked at this and for that age group, this is still hugely beneficial or you know, clearly beneficial. I find it difficult to imagine how that case could, could be made. It
1: is incredible. Yeah. It is, as I said, comes back to this, in, in years to come, people will look back on examples like this very one that you're talking about now. And we'll 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 say that 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 you know what happened to science? What happened to logic? Because as we know, we know it's not just under twelve. You know, you've seen the response, the the Office of National Statistics response, I assume, to that request about the number of uh, deaths by age category had been caused by COVID. Were were COVID classified deaths where COVID was the only cause of death? I. They didn't have at least one other major comorbidity and the number of such deaths for the whole of the first two years in the under 20s not just talking about the under 20s the under 20s was three three deaths out of the so called um whatever the 140,000 deaths overall three of those deaths without comorbidities in people under 20 so the risk is essentially zero right because actually and this is another thing that people don't pick up on actually the risk the number of uh deaths in that age group due to normal flus is higher would be higher okay so once you take that into account as you say there is no there's no possible there is no logical scientific argument for uh, making that decision that we need to vaccinate those younger age groups you have to suspect it's about there is some there's some other agenda here which is associated with this apparent obsessive drive to vaccinate everybody, no matter how young. Well, or the, old.
0: The, yeah. This, so this this is what we're concluding, and also when we come to pregnant women, which we're going to talk about shortly, uh, this is this is what I'm concluding: is are they doing this in order to, in order to bolster the vaccine program as a whole? Because if we say, well, it's too dangerous for children, it's too dangerous for pregnant women, then the general uptake. Will go down, and the view that it's an automatic good and you don't need to form your own individual view and have proper informed consent that, that, that view will fall, and people will start asking lots of questions, and the, the total vaccine uptake will go down dramatically. And well, I don't know, and yeah. what the, the, maybe they've modeled that is, is, is going to be hugely harmful. You are they doing it for reasons other than the reason stated? In other words if they're saying we're going to vaccinate 5- to 11-year-olds, do they actually believe that this is beneficial or harmful for those 5- to 11-year-olds? Is there some greater good principle going on? Uh, because well, if we're doing that with, with children, that would be extremely concerning.
1: Well, the, the greater good argument, unfortunately, is one which is very evident, again, amongst um, scientists and academics. I, I've... I, I can't... Tell you the exact circumstances of this, but um uh that 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 expression, that exactly that we are doing this for the greater good, has been said to me by you know very senior um academic uh professors. I won't I, I won't say what the context is, but it shocked me to the core that they were prepared publicly to lie for the greater good. Right? They actually said we in that particular Example: This person actually said, "We have to lie for the greater good." Right? So it's beyond just saying we're doing this for the greater good. They explicitly know that they're lying for the greater good. And in this case, anybody who argues that we have to vaccinate these very young children must be doing so. And if they if they are actually saying that that there is a risk that that we're doing it because the benefits outweigh the risk of them, then they are by, they are clearly
0: lying for the greater
1: good. There is there is no, there's no doubt about that. In that case.
0: That's, that's very, very worrying. Just to finish this, this point off, my response when it finally came in from the, AMHR, the MHRE, when I asked for that risk assessment started. Many thanks for reaching out. That was an encouraging start. And they then referred me to the decision they'd made to vaccinate, the summary of product characteristics, the patient information leaflet, and the public assessment report from the EMA. And that's it. There was no risk assessment. There was no The data I asked for, the yeah. ju- justification I asked for was, was just ignored.
1: I mean, I don't know if you saw the story yesterday that, that seemed to broke. I mean, Greg, I haven't seen it absolutely confirmed, but there does seem to be um, this in- new information about the under twelves no longer it's no longer being like strongly recommended to under-twelves. They've got to ask kind of like ask for special permission to be vaccinated. Like, it's no longer part of the standard rollout. I don't know if you saw that story. I know uh, I, I, I've, M- I've
0: seen it I've seen this the report, but I haven't myself gone into the weeds to find out exactly what it refers to in, in precise terms. Um so this brings us to um one of the areas that's that's been of greatest concern to us in the u k column really for um well over a year, which is the the idea that we're going to be vaccinating pregnant women mm. and that yep. this is viewed as a good and the, and the threats to the unborn child and to the pregnant mother um are we think not being properly assessed now um i'll I'll, I'll start if I may, I don't know if you get a chance to, to view this. I I, I did a, a piece on the UK column back on the 12th of July, 2021. Uh, and I looked at the data, which was then available, which wasn't very huge. Data from the United States, from, from um, I think it was Pfizer, if memory serves, uh, about the risk of miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, they called it. And they, they basically had... Um, a group of um, eight hundred and twenty seven women who had been vaccinated when the vaccine wasn't recommended during pregnancy but they'd become pregnant um, unintentionally um, and or they f- or they found out they were pregnant after they were after they were vaccinated but they had been pregnant when they were, um, when they were first vaccinated or so it was, a, it, was a, it was a strange kind of grouping, but they, they got a certain amount of data together um, So 827 women, and they looked at the overall vaccine. The, the over, they looked at the overall rate of miscarriage, and it was mm. more or less normal, And they said, "It's fine. there's, there's no miscarriage risk. We're, we're good. This is hard data. We're satisfied with this. We need some more studies, but this is good data, and we're fine." Um, But they didn't correct for the fact that most of the women were vaccinated and joined this study in the second or third trimester. They weren't looking at women, for the most part, in the first trimester, where most miscarriages occur. And I did some calculations uh, based on that, just just correcting for that one issue, using publicly available information, assuming a 17.5% spontaneous abortion miscarriage rate assuming 80% of those in the first trimester and 20% in the second. Data that I pulled from publicly available websites from experienced MDs and specialists in the field in America. And I got that there should have been 54 um, miscarriages in that group based on that data. And there were in fact 115. So it was over twice. And that was enough for me to say, there's a signal, a signal of risk that there should be, well, A, we shouldn't be giving it to pregnant women, but there was no hint in any of the official data um, uh, regarding COVID-19 vaccine vaccine and pregnancy, that this was even a concern. All the official messages were, it's fine, get vaccinated. I've got here um, uh, an explainer on COVID vaccination from... Vicky Mayo, lecturer in reproductive immunology at Imperial College London. And when asked, is it safe to have COVID-19 during pregnancy? She says, yes, the safety of COVID vaccination in pregnancy is being monitored in a number of ways. She talks about the yellow card scheme. She talks about VAERS. She She then says, in the UK, on the 16th of August 2021, at which point 55,000 pregnant people Not women, never mind, had been vaccinated. The MHRA released a statement saying there is no pattern from the reports to suggest that any of the COVID 19 vaccinations, vaccines used in the UK, uh, or any reactions to these vaccines increase the risk of miscarriage or stillbirth. So she's saying there's just the MHRA say everything's fine. And I find that troubling. The fact that I looked at the original data and I I could see a twofold increase in miscarriage that wasn't being discussed. It wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't as if the CDC are much more knowledgeable than me and didn't agree, but, but said, well, yes, you could look at the figures that way, but that would be wrong because of this reason. There was nothing, there was no discussion. It was just the, the, the headline rate's normal, therefore there's no problem, move along. There's nothing to see. and And the actual nature of the data was never really properly examined. I find it troubling that that happened. I'm still troubled by the fact that we are recommending this for for women during pregnancy. Uh, What's your position on this?
1: Right. Well, first of all, I need to apologise to you for not referencing your July. I wasn't aware of that, that article you'd written in 2021 because I actually put a blog post up yesterday explaining this exact problem which is basically the survivor bias calculation in these um these pregnancy outcomes which simply doesn't factor in as you said the fact that they're classifying as uh, the women who get vaccinated especially late on in in, in the pregnancy which many do actually uh, have already survived the by definition the early periods the early trimesters when the miscarriages are far more likely to happen and there's an analogy the analogy I actually used here was a kind of like a marathon imagine a marathon race where you've got a 40 kilometer marathon that's a sort of 26 miles and uh, uh people you're trying to determine whether if you give people a sort of a special vitamin drink during the race that's going to make them more likely to complete the race so you set up a drink station at 20 kilometers where runners can pick up the drink if they wish and then you simply observe let's suppose you know, two hundred people who started the race, and you might then observe a hundred who picked up the drink, and a hundred who didn't pick up the drink. And you, what you find is that the those who did pick up the drink have a much higher completion rate than those who didn't pick up the drink. Well, of course, you're going to get that, and you should get that because the simple reason that lots of the runners never make it they simply they simply never complete the race even before the, they drop out before the, quen, the twenty kilometer part. And of course when once you factor the number who've who've pulled out and then you focus only on those who actually had the opportunity to take the drink or not you get the results flipped you find it's actually turned around completely what appeared to be showing evidence of the you know the, the vitamin drink being uh leading to a much greater probability of completing the race turns out to be no exactly the opposite and this is exactly the problem that you've described and exactly why a lot of these studies which are claiming to, sh- to show you know that there's no greater risk of failing to complete so the analogy is that you know the runners are the uh, in the marathon of the pregnant women who, are pit- women who become pregnant the completion completing the marathon is having a healthy baby at the end of it and the taking the vitamin drink sometime in the middle is of course getting a vaccination that's a little bit complicated a little bit more complicated for pregnancy because they could take the vaccine at various stages. But essentially, it's the same problem, that you've got that, that survivor bias is coming in. And all those studies, as you say, that are claiming that there isn't any greater risk, or incidentally, even worse, David, is a lot of these studies are claiming that the risk of miscarriage uh, and stillbirth is actually lower, they're claiming, in the vaccinated, which is an even more dangerous conclusion to make but it's also simply just this same statistical illusion of the survivor bias and failure to take fully account of the points, you know, the times at which the people, the women classified as vaccinated, actually get their vaccinations, their first vaccination. And, and it's it, it's horrified. It's, it's it's really it's really appalling.
0: And do do you have any do you have any knowledge as to the current State of the assessment process within the MHRA as to what extent they're taking survivor bias into account in in, in coming up with their recommendations.
1: Well, the problem is that with the UK, if you look at the UKHRA, I just want to check it is the um, just I'm checking that I'm referring to the correct um, the, the yeah so, so sorry UKHSI sorry got no, the. UK health security agencies—they're the ones who are publishing the regular vaccine surveillance reports and have a section on in there—and it's clear they're not; they're not doing this. And it, they, but there's an even greater complication. You know what they're doing? If you look at their data on stillbirths, right? They are only—they're cons- only considering the following two categories. They're, they're simply saying they're treating the unvaccinated by definition as no doses in pregnancy and the vaccinated are one or more doses in pregnancy right so they're they're lumping together those with um no dose in pregnancy they're for a start they're lumping together the people who had a vaccination before pregnancy so there's yet another confounding problem with their data and they're not even they're not even correcting for that so it's kind of like even it's 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 kind of like even worse Right? And the only way to do this properly, and I've not seen any study, and certainly not UKHSA and certainly not MHRA, which are looking at not only the, the uh, exact time, not only classifying the vaccination category by the, you know, the time. So at the very least, you need to do those. Um, at the very least, you need, you need the following. You need to have a category for those who've never been vaxxed. You need a category for those who've been vaxxed pre-pregnancy only you need a category etc for those who've been vaxxed pre-pregnancy and early pregnancy early pregnancy etc and then you've got the categories which are which are pre and late or early and late and also late only it's those last two categories where they're getting a vaccination they're getting a vaccination late only during the pregnancy which are again uh, causing this uh, survivor bias um, on, on all the data. And they're not doing any, they're not doing any of that type of categorization. They're sim- and they're simply not, you know, and they're, as I say, they're also, um, they're simply not even recording the, the, you know, those differences. So there's no way that they're, they're taking account of this. And as I said, it's not just, um, you mentioned Vicky Mao. I mean, there's a, there's a story about, uh, because I, I, I've raised these issues and I've been ferociously attacked about this, but there's also, there was the BBC, in the BBC documentary, Unvaccinated, which is what I think I might have discussed them when I was on, when I was interviewed before. I think that, that came, that certainly came yeah, up in Yes, it, it,
0: uh, yes, it was, came up in your, in your previous interview with us.
1: Yeah, there was an explicit claim there by Asma Khalil, who was the expert on this, who they didn't reveal was actually the, the PI of the Pfizer trial for pregnancy, the vaccination pregnancy. You know, for um, pregnancy of vaccinated women, she actually made the claim in that program that the risk of miscarriage was reduced by fifteen percent for for, vac- for vaccinated women. And of course, she's using exactly this type of confounded data that we're talking about.
0: Your, your point um, about the definition of, the definition of who is vaccinated and who isn't is is another one that that keeps coming up. In- in terms of how how reliable is the data, and is it being correctly interpreted and th- there was another um, uh, statistics and risk analyst expert and i 'm afraid I can't remember his name he He reported on this um, many months ago, and what he'd found was that um, as the vaccine rollout happened in each age cohort there was in the two to three weeks after the rollout, there was a spike in all-cause mortality in that same cohort. Uh, that was cohort. our group? So that was, that, was that your group? So the 80-year-old, yeah. 85-year-olds, there would be a spike, and then two weeks later, when they were running the same thing, in the 70-year-olds, there was a spike. But what was also found was that the the unvaccinated, some of the unvaccinated, had, a, had an identically timed spike, and it was also... it it was also uh, aligned with the vaccine rollout program age group by age group. And the only explanation for that is that the unvaccinated group, some of them were in fact vaccinated and the data's poor.
1: Oh yeah, it was even worse than that because actually, if you looked at the, the mortality data by vaccination per age group, you actually find that you get this fairly sharp spike. Apparently, for so non-COVID deaths in the unvaccinated at the very time that age group has the biggest rollout in vaccine, So that's what we showed was that was absolute proof that you've got this miscategorization, i.e. a lot of the people who are dying shortly after vaccination are being miscategorized as unvaccinated. Now they do this, of course, they're not supposed to do this with deaths because they're supposed to record them. That doesn't matter how shortly after they're supposed to record those as a vaccinated death, but of course in practice in the fog of war which happens when people get who do die shortly after vaccination, the record of their vaccination doesn't get doesn't get linked to the vaccination there are issues with that right but remember that they're pulling the same trick on vaccine efficacy where anybody and this is this is by definition this isn't just incompetence this is by definition they are defining anybody who gets covid within fourteen days of their First vaccination as unvaccinated because their argument is, well, we've got to leave it 14 days. We can't count those because we've got to leave it 14 days for the vaccine to take effect. And the same thing with the second dose and the booster, et cetera. So you've got those. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you, I haven't even in this, in my the blog piece about the survival bias, I haven't even mentioned that, but that confounds it even further because a lot of these, for example, um, fouled pregnancies where someone's been vaccinated, they will probably count that if it happened very if a miscarriage happened very shortly after vaccination they will count that as an unvaccinated woman
0: yeah yeah exactly so this is this is some of the problems we're facing uh, the the one of the most one of the most striking bits of data that i saw was a a plot of it was uh, was long term cumulative total all cause mortality and i think it was in Twenty to forty-one year old males in the UK, something like that, as memory serves. And because it was cumulative, it was it was basically a, it was basically a straight line, right? So it, the the rate didn't vary much; it wiggled very slightly, but it was basically a straight line. And then the angle of that line visibly changed to something steeper. So all cause mortality went up, and then it then it carried on at the steeper line. Um, so that mortality in that age group had gone up, and stayed up. And it was very, very striking. And the inflection point was two weeks after the vaccination rollout for that age group. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm looking and... at things like this, and I'm thinking, you know, what what is a signal of a problem with the vaccination safety, if that's not one? Because I don't know.
1: Exactly. I mean, just look at, I mean, the VARs thing, that should have been the, you, you know, you didn't even need the detailed mortality data, the VARs data was a was really a sufficient signal safety signal because however they want to spin it with oh there's a lot of self-reporting and there's a lot of inaccuracies right the fact is actually there's under reporting but you simply compare it with previous reporting of a vaccine adverse reactions and what you see is that the var system i think has been in place over 30 years i think it's set up in 1990 so it's 32 years or so and in all the first 30 years before covid there were um, less than 10,000 vaccine uh, deaths in VARs, I claim to be deaths associated with vaccines, all vaccines combined, all vaccines combined. And in two years of the COVID vaccines, there's over 30,000. So in two years of COVID, three times as many deaths reported in VARs, as in for all vaccines, you know, in the whole of the 30 years before that, that the VARs system had been in existence. That should have been enough. And, I mean, I know that um, Steve Kirsch has also got some interesting data now showing that there's this potential relationship sort of five months on. People forget or ignore the fact that if somebody, you know, people who die sort of five or six months after having the vaccine, they wouldn't they wouldn't even probably enter it into VARS. They should, certainly wouldn't enter it into VARS that, that late. They wouldn't even, you know, their family, and I know this actually from, personal experience, their family certainly wouldn't associate it as possibly being associated in any way with the vaccine. And so they get kind of ignored. And yet he's seen us he's got evidence of a a, real evidence of of this mortality signal five to six months in in those five to six months after vaccination. So there are so many, there are so many signals. Of course, well, what the problem is, look. I'm not one of those certainly who's claimed that there's going to be massive increases in deficit. We're talking about small. We're talking about relatively small increases, certainly at the moment, right? And and of course we don't know. You know we've got some certainly statistical evidence of, of causation here, but we, we we can't be certain of that. But there is enough of this safety signal there that, especially in, I mean, I used to say in the Sort of under 60s. I, I'm, I'm tempted to say now for everybody that coming back to that whole risk-benefit thing that, that, that there's that, that really the vaccination program should be stopped now because the safety signals are so so high relative to the any potential benefits now the vaccine that, that the argument's over.
0: So um, this brings us to the final thing I'd like to cover, which is the, the reaction that, that you're seeing to you and the attacks on you personally for saying that. Well, that, that's,
1: I was gonna, I ought to
0: just, there's been loads
1: that, that I've had all this before, but I, what's, int- what's most interesting is the reaction that's happened about the preg- this pregnancy issue. So the story here is, is that, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the um the 27th of something like 20, yeah, the 29th of August, just a couple of weeks ago. A, a person on Twitter, someone called Tracy K2017, she put up a tweet where she'd noticed, she'd been looking at the government websites for advice on um the safety of vaccines for pregnant women. She noticed that the most recent the updated web page on this, so there was an update, a web page which was called Um, something like the summary of the public assessment report for COVID-19 vaccine Pfizer, updated the 16th of August, 2022. It said very, very clearly on it, which actually um, had this section on toxicity conclusions, which I can tell you, I can give you a quote of what it said. It said, in the context of the supply, it is considered that sufficient reassurance of safe use of the vaccine in pregnant women, women cannot be provided at the present time and it said very explicitly, exact words, women who are breastfeeding should also not be vaccinated. Those are the words in a web page, in a government web page, which had last been updated the 16th of August, right? And what she'd also noted, or other people had noted, was that the government web page, which, which was called Guidance COVID 19 Vaccination, a Guide on Pregnancy and Breastfeeding, which had last been updated the 11th of April 2022 I earlier earlier it says very categorically covid-19 vaccination is strongly recommended for pregnant and breastfeeding women so what she did was make a, t- a not unreasonable conclusion right in her tweet that it appears the government has updated its previous advice April 20 20- Uh, April, 11th of April, 2020, that the vaccination is strongly recommended for pregnant breastfeeding women. To new advice on the, um, uh, when was it, the the 16th of August, 2022, that they shouldn't take, they shouldn't have the vaccine. It's not recommended to have the vaccine if you're breastfeeding. Now, here's here's the story. So she put this tweet out, and I looked at it, right, and other people ha- were already pointing out well this isn 't exactly the case because that most recent document the august the sixteenth document people were claiming although it had been there was some update we don 't know what on sixteenth of August, the document itself and the, that recommendation hadn 't hadn 't changed at all since de- December two thousand and twenty, and that was just based on the original you know, fires trial data and so um, I checked this up. I actually put up a, my, my tweet, right? I put up a little blog post and actually clarifying this, all of this. I put all of this and said, well, actually, um, no, it, it, it probably hasn't. That that recommendation probably was always there, but why was there this 16th? What was in the 16th of the August update? I accept it wasn't the change to the that particular, what was called the toxicity conclusions thing, but there clearly had been changes. This idea that it had never been changed since 2022 clearly wasn't the case. In fact, there had been quite a lot of updates. They were very difficult to find, but there are quite a lot of updates, mainly minor ones. They were mainly minor. But nevertheless, it's not unreasonable that Tracy should have put that tweet out, because the tweet went absolutely viral. And my tweet did as well, but not as viral as hers. She got suspended from Twitter almost like within two days of that tweet, which is a complete outrage, because she's just a member of the public not unreasonably, making conclusions about what seemed to be conflicting advice on the government website, where the most recent one was this, um, uh, the, the statement that the that it wasn't recommended. So, absolutely, all hell broke broke loose on, Vicar that, on, on Twitter. That Vicky Mao suddenly became the government spokesman somehow for it, and she was putting out all these tweets saying, "This is all nonsense. The, the recommendation is clear." The the, you know, the latest recommendation is clear, well, and she's correct in the sense that the latest official government rep, uh, recommendation is in that eleventh of April document, not in the not in the sixteenth of August document with the summary report. Right, so she's correct in saying that the latest um, uh, government and NHS recommendation is that pregnant women uh, should get vaccinated, and it's perfectly safe for them to 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 breastfeed, etc um i got absolutely um uh, hammered uh because i was you know questioning whether it really was safe i mean it's interesting because then i what where there was another ah but it's not the end of this update because actually what it got even worse it got even more confusing because it turned out that i think it was just last saturday on the third of september yeah, on the 3rd of September, so on the 2nd of September, John Campbell, who is a very, very well-known um, YouTuber, he's got like something like two and a half million YouTube followers, and he has been extensively um, uh, presenting uh, completely objective videos, often quite supportive of the government nar- narrative on, uh, about the COVID vaccine, et cetera. I'm, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, yeah? So he's he's been he put out a video on the 2nd of September so last Friday where he was also talking about this confusion over the uh, the, the the conflicting advice on the government web pages and he essentially put up the same screenshot that I did where I compared the two the, the screenshot from the 16th of the August document with what was said in the 11th of April document and he simply pointed out, as I had done, uh, this confusion. And here's what, I, I was absolutely astonished at what happened next. I, the next morning, I see that there's a, um, a tweet from a, uh, this woman called Susan Oliver, uh, who's in Australia, who's basically says the following. She says, Campbell has doubled down on his vaccine pregnancy information, publishing a new video using already debunked misinformation and he then she then says, he is careful not to show the whole screenshot but makes it clear the information is no longer current. And she's got a screenshot, which actually now on that 16th of August document, and it still says, this page is updated on the 16th of August, 2022. And there is now a statement, which actually has added that it actually says that it's based on this initial assessment in December, 2020 and the, that has not, that, that report has, has remained unchanged and our, our advice is regularly um, updated and it points to the other document. It points to the other document. So there's, a, there's this gray box right at the top of that web page, which is the 16th of August webpage. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a sec. I looked at that web page just a couple of days ago. And my screenshot, I didn't miss anything from the screenshot. I, I know that, that that gray text box which Susan Oliver's claiming was always there, and therefore there should never have been any confusion about this, it wasn't there. So we basically found out on the Wayback Machine that that gray text box had been inserted at some time on the 2nd of September. We know, we know for certain it was not there in the early hours of the 2nd of September when uh, for example, when you know, John Campbell made his video on the 2nd, so it's, it's you know, there was nothing, she was colluding him with some malice here, whereas in fact, it really had just been inserted, that text box. And it becomes, what makes it even more bizarre now, is that if you go to that website, we now know that a change was made on the 2nd of September because that gray box was inserted. And yet, it's still saying last updated 16th of August. So, what I mean, what is going on here? That the confusion over this is, is nuts, right? So this was getting you know, I I I'm quite sort of angry about this and what I did was that I noticed that some um, anonymous blogger right had posted an article which actually looked at the sort of the whole issue of this this um the pregnancy advice and the stuff that Vicky Mao had been putting out you know strongly advising and, and had, had done some quite interesting analyses about you know about the whole thing and questioning you know what and, and and showing why a lot of these claims you know maybe weren't valid like they were claiming i e the whole justification for advising pregnant women to take the vax maybe you know maybe were weren't valid and his i I simply sent a link to his i put a i put a tweet out linking to that that blog post saying some interesting analysis here that's all I did right now it turns out that that blog piece had a, had a photoshopped image which included the face of Vicky Mao. actually I didn't even re- I didn't even realize that 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 was her right but if you as you know if you tweet a link to a blog post it will actually it will actually automatically generate an image the image from a, a chosen image from the post which you have no control over you can't stop it and you can't uh, control it and as a result of that they were basically uh, people have been claiming. In fact, Vicky Mal herself um, has uh, put out a tweet in, so almost implying that it was me who created that 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 Photoshop meme, right? And the and the abuse. well, even before even before that that accusation? The, the abuse I got for sharing this this um, uh, this particular blog post, which I didn't, I wasn't even endorsing. I was simply saying some interesting stuff here. Right? It was unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. I got an attack by the um what we call the mutton crew the sort of the 7th brigade so anybody who follows this sort of swelled out mutton character um is part of this brigade and it was ferocious right it was calling me a genocidal murderer um it was calling me a misogynist baby killer all all kinds of things um it was demand they were demanding with um by um uh, copying in queen mary and even my departmental website you know twitter handles that i'd be sacked right they've written they've, i know they've written emails and you know, well they were always doing this past, but this is a this is a mass coordinated attack now mass coordinated attack so multiple emails sent to um queen mary etc as well as these vicious accusations completely you know vicious and, and, and unfounded accusations uh on twitter and a lot of this stuff is coming from ac- other academics as well
0: won't name their names. You can go and see it. You can go and look at it. It's a disgrace. Um, so, it, it, I mean, it is it is a a very troubling um, uh, position where the the academic world is now so politicised. It's now so keen to defend orthodoxy and to rally around and and, and and claim that the emperor's clothes are magnificent, that anybody raising a voice, however moderately or mildly or accurately um, in opposition is subject to this degree of social media abuse, um, public um, attack. And, and it's clearly an attempt to remove Uh, people from their jobs. They go after your job, they go after your income, they go after um, your position from which you're speaking with authority to cleanse academia of of wrong think. And this is deeply Orwellian and uh, deeply troubling. And when you're dealing with people who have spent a long time um, accumulating a technical expertise, engineers and scientists, are prime examples, if that has been gained at the expense of a more broad education in um, the humanities, in what it is to be human, right in history, theology, um, philosophy, then there can be a huge, and indeed law is the other one that, that gives an indication, because these areas are not developed. There's a huge weakness in the technical areas of expertise in science and engineering. Um, they don't spot evil well at all, and they accept the status quo far too readily. And then that that then seems to cycle around and then compromising the technical understanding because they don't have the strength of character and the will and the understanding of what they're up against in order to resist um, evil, in order to resist lies, in order to compromise the truth, and the the normal human frailties of weakness and a tendency to roll over and not, not be gallant, but be cowardly, seems to then assert itself, and It's sad to see the few people who are gallant and do stand up and speak the truth um, attacked, and then not defended by their colleagues, not defended by their profession. And this kind of cancerous um, background uh, culture, once once established, I think will be very difficult to shift. I I described um, I described the attack on dissident. uh, journalists in Britain by the government to a colleague in Israel and he said well but surely all the other journalists will attack the government and have them for breakfast and it'll be all over the press. I said no that's not how it happened and he said at least at this point this was maybe 15-20 years ago he said well that's what would happen in Israel the, the journalists wouldn't allow one of the number to be bullied and abused in that fashion because they recognise if it's him today, it's me tomorrow, essentially, and yep. and that realisation doesn't seem to have remained in British institutions. And there is this willingness to go along with the um, the, the, the the public trial and execution of dissident um, thinkers um, at a time when dissident thinkers are exactly what this country needs. It's very disturbing, and I hope that you start to see. Support from your colleagues and um, and from the public at large for for the stand you're making.
1: Well, there is some support from the public at large, but of course, even that's kind of like censored and and, and obliterated. There are there are you know a very small number of 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 colleagues who have supported me, and and an even smaller number supports me publicly um, because they, (laughs) not unreasonably, can't even come out openly and express their support because. They would be similarly
0: targeted well how is the how has the university responded to this
1: I haven't had any official I haven't seen the official response according to following the um attackers' twitter feeds they're they're claiming that they've had a response from the university which they were going to share. I haven't seen that yet. The university hasn't asked me to defend myself um no no doubt they will, but I haven't seen that it's an easy defense in this case, because it's a blatant lie, it's a blatant, you know, if this is based on me, either writing or, or producing a, a photoshopped image, it's, it's, it's a total defamation, it's a scandal.
0: Would you like to say a, a, a few <laughs> yeah. final words before we close?
1: Well, actually on um, Brett Weinstein's uh uh podcast, his Dark Horse podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I won't, I'll just repeat what he said, rather than, saying that this, this is my view. He, he, we were talking about this whole thing about you know, academia and, and what's going on. And his view was that you should regard academia as a rabid dog, right? And that there is no, there is no way that, that it can basically be cured.
0: Well, that's a good point to end on. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that approach. And I want to thank you for your time today, and it's been fascinating listening to you. And hopefully we can uh, pick up a, a third in this series, perhaps after the university has responded and we're a little bit further down the line in, um, in the story of uh, your your experience of speaking truth to power and uh, winning the argument technically, statistically, mathematically, and with the data. Um, and yet perhaps not winning the day we will uh, we will see what transpires and we will hope for good things professor fenton thank you very much thank you bye